Please rise for the reading of God's Word. There's a misprint there. It'll be Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Hear now God's Word. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Foundations are necessary for building a future. On this second Sunday of Advent, it is appropriate for us to consider both the first and the second Advents of Christ. God promised a Savior, and He also promised the return of a Savior. We look back on the first, and we look forward to the second. The Bible is a big book and a long story, and some of this can be daunting and complicated and confusing, but the story is really both simple and complex. It's the simple unity that enables us to make sense of all the details, the the complex details. All of it is about Jesus and his saving work, either directly or indirectly. So the Bible is one story, the story of God, man, sin, and redemption. It's a comprehensive story. It embraces every aspect of life. It includes all things, visible and invisible. It includes the past and the future. And so let me declare up front that not only does Jesus win in the end, He has, in fact, already won. He has already been crowned King. There is total victory in Jesus. I want to talk today about eschatology. Eschatology is from the Greek word eschatos, which is the study of last things. It includes a range of things, but we often think in terms of the second coming of Christ and and the millennial issues and things like that, but it also includes the subject of death and resurrection and heaven and hell. Most of the popular eschatologies, especially in the last 150 years of the church, Let me simply say, I believe them to be a false narrative of defeat. We have been told that Jesus is coming back soon to pluck us out of this disaster of a world. But scripture is clear in its contrary declaration. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ And he shall reign forever and ever. What a difference our eschatology makes. 
You see, our eschatology, like every other aspect of our theology, has powerful implications. If we're sitting around waiting for Jesus to rapture us out of this evil world at any moment, then this will have radically different effects on my life than if I see the power of the gospel marching through history and conquering all of Christ and my enemies. Have his enemies, in fact, been made a footstool? Was Satan defeated and crushed at the cross? You see, it matters which eschatology we hold to because ideas always have consequences. Is it true, as J. Vernon McGee declared in the early 1950s, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship? Or are we preparing to conquer the world and to assert the crown rights of Jesus Christ, of King Jesus? Is the world really getting worse and worse? Really? So which century would you rather live in? than this one. Any volunteers? Every generation suffers from the fallacy of chronological snobbery, which thinks they are living in the worst times ever. Now, this is not a matter of picking which version of eschatology we like. It's simply a matter of us conforming our thinking to what the Bible actually teaches. So when we read in the opening verses... Of the book of Revelation, this statement that John makes, and again, how often we hear, oh, I take the word of God literally. All right, then listen. These are the first three verses of the book of Revelation, which is the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how it opens. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, that is to Jesus, to show his servants... Things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Near. Are we prepared to take him and his inspired words at face value when he says things which must shortly take place and specifically warns that the time is near? John, was he writing about things that were still 2,000 years away? Or was he speaking of things that would occur in his lifetime and in the lifetime of his initial readers? Well, I saw where Joe Biden started his no malarkey tour this week. Well, I think we've had a long-running malarkey tour when it comes to eschatology. Jesus is Lord. And, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that that's true. Satan is not alive and well on planet earth. Jesus has entered the strong man's house and has bound him and has plundered his goods. Since the resurrection, the church has been and continues to advance as we speak. 
God's people are assembled all over the world today in victory celebrations. That's what this is. And the result, we have every reason for acting with confidence because he has gained the victory. How we view God and Christ is how we will view ourselves and it will profoundly affect how we view the future. And our view of the future largely depends on our view of the beginning of all of history and on the doctrine of God and salvation. Theology is a seamless garment. And we cannot change our mind on one part without also changing our minds on the other parts. God has had one plan from the beginning, and contrary to the dispensational view of history, the Bible is clear, and God says, I am the Lord, and I do not change. I don't have plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, seven of them, or however many. God has had that one plan, and now eschatology like many other subjects in the Bible, of course, is a big subject. And I'm only going to skim the surface this morning, but I'll simply say this. If anything I've said or that I'm about to say piques your interest, then let's talk later. God promised through Abraham's descendants, and we are the children of Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed through him and his descendants. People out of every tribe, tongue, and nation have been and will be converted to Christ. The reign of King Jesus extends to the four corners of the earth. Therefore, we are called to action with the assurance of victory. We are marching around Jericho with our trumpets. How could we believe such a thing? Haven't you read the news lately? Well, you know what? Old Abraham believed God when God told him that he would make of him a great nation and that through his seed the nations would be blessed. And Abraham and Sarah were old and childless when God said that. How could this be? And if Abraham was listening to the news of his day, he would have had way more reasons to be discouraged than we do. But the Bible says that Abraham believed God. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's some pretty good vision. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And hear what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the first century Christians in Galatia. He says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so that those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, a lot of bad stuff happened between Abraham and Jesus. And Jesus showed up right on time. 
You see, at the center of the big story that we call history is Jesus Christ. All things were not only created by Him, they were created for Him. He comprehends all of eternity. Jesus is the mediator of the covenant between God and man. He is the monogenes, the unique Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. All power and authority have been given to Him in heaven and on earth. All of it. And as our text reveals to us, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Christ died to save sinners, but this is also the offense of the gospel. It's the universal kingship of Jesus Christ that is so threatening to the Caesars of this world. And that's why Rome crucified him. And that's why the resurrection ultimately defeated Rome. God's people have been and currently are engaged in a cosmic struggle of epic proportions. It's not just men they fight for, nor men who fight against them. It's Satan himself who's at work fighting the fulfillment of the purpose of God. Nevertheless, we need not fear. For Satan is doomed to failure and has, in fact, already been dealt the decisive blow. Revelation 12, 4 and 5, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. And the male child, the son of the woman, is none other than Christ himself. Her son was destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote in the book of Revelation in regard to this child. And this is a description of the Messiah that's found in three other places. Psalm 2 is the first reference where God says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And he's speaking to the nations when he says that, to the world. And he says, You, speaking of his son, shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The picture is, uh, imagine a big yard of clay pots and somebody has an iron rod running through that warehouse of clay pots. To the church at Thyatira, John wrote, But uh, behold, excuse me, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. He quotes Psalm 2. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. That's what he says to the church. And then in Revelation 19, man, this is powerful. Now out of his mouth, speaking of Jesus, goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations. His word. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh... A name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus was caught up to God and His throne. This is a reference to the ascension and the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. Notice that Satan stands ready 
to devour the child as soon as he's born. This speaks of the many failed attempts by the devil to destroy Christ. When he was a baby, Herod attempted to have him put to death. When he first began to preach, those of his own hometown attempted to throw him over a cliff. On more than one occasion, the Jews attempted to stone him. These were all strategies of the devil to try to stop Christ. In addition to these, remember that Satan himself tempted Jesus in the wilderness to sin against God. And he attempted through Peter to dissuade him from going to the cross. In all of this, there was much more than what meets the eye. A cosmic war was going on in which all the forces of hell were marshaled against our Lord in a vain attempt to thwart God's plan of redemption. This war extended into heaven itself between Michael and Satan. And after the son of the woman is caught up to the throne of God, the circumstances change. After the resurrection, Satan is cast down from heaven, representing his decisive defeat, which he suffered at the death and resurrection of Christ. The scriptures uniformly represent the decisive victory of Christ over the devil as being affected through the cross. A day or two before he went to the cross, Jesus said this, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. He said this in connection with his death as demonstration of the very next, in the very next verses in, in John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. As the Apostle Paul said, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. In Hebrews we read, through death, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Doesn't sound to me like he's alive and well. And John tells us that the Son of God appeared for this very purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is the decisive moment in the drama of redemption. Revelation 12.10, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan's plan to destroy Christ has backfired. And Paul told the Romans, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. This is not a future expectation, but a present reality. Again in Revelation 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. We stand assured in his presence. The child prevailed. But he's not quite finished. He's coming back to wrap things up. He's coming as the victorious king, and he's coming in glory to finish the story. 
So will God accomplish His redemptive plan? A God that isn't sovereign can't be certain. Every moment offers a new contingency and a new question. Perhaps the story won't end the way God predicted it. But God is never surprised by men or devils. He can shake this little ant farm whenever He chooses. Romans 9. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles. In Isaiah 55, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the eternal Logos who spoke the world into existence, the incarnate Word who was born in Bethlehem, the resurrected Lord who used the sword, uh, the sword of His Word to execute judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., He will have the last Word. It's our wise, powerful, and sovereign God who is accomplishing all of His holy will, and that's what gives us comfort in the midst of the chaos. You know what, I'm, you've read books before where you're in the middle of a chapter that you're not, there's all kind of chaos, you're not sure what's going on. But, you know, what if you, you know, you could, right? You could flip over to the last chapter and find out who won and what happened. We've got that. That's what God gave us. So, but did you see the news this week? Yeah, I, I did. But I know how the story ends and I'm not that concerned about that. We look around and think, how could this happen? How, how could he actually be winning? It looks like we're losing. What well, do you think? That, you think CNN's going to report that we're winning? You really think that? Do you really think that? Do you really think that the world press has any idea what goes on every single day in the name of Christ? Acts of love and prayer and service and the gospel and the rescues of people and transformations of their lives. They don't report on any of that. In fact, they try to cover it up. But you see, the God of the resurrection has no difficulty at all. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We are only one generation from the world's complete conversion. I don't know when that will happen. Is God capable of that? I remember in 1989 that I saw a demonstration of how quickly things can change and change dramatically. I never would have thought in my lifetime. I had done a fair amount of reading on global politics and communism in the world. But do you know the story of Laszlo Tokes, a Protestant pastor who in December of 1989 stood up to the Romanian communist despot Nicolae Ceausescu 
and sparked a revolution that freed Romania from tyranny equal to that of the dictator Joseph Stalin, and it all happened in about two weeks. Few dared to speak out against President Ceausescu and his Stalinist secret police. A noble exception was a 37-year-old Laszlo Tokes, the assistant pastor of the Hungarian Reformed Church in the Transylvanian town of Timisoara. The theme of his sermon was simple but arresting. Quote, We do not have to support the dictatorship and the dictator Ceausescu. No one had dared to utter such a public challenge. Ordered to stop preaching, Tokes refused. Directed to leave the apartment in which he and his family were living and moved to a distant, isolated town, he refused. In November, attackers armed with knives broke into his church apartment, but Tokes and his friends fought them off. In mid-December, when an eviction order was issued, members of the Tokes congregation began a vigil outside his lodging and a human chain formed around the block. By the evening of December 15th, 1989, the crowd had increased to several thousand, including students, Romanians, as well as Hungarians, Orthodox, as well as Protestants. They began singing, Wake Up, O Romanian, a song banned in 1947 by the Communists. They shouted, down with Ceausescu and down with communism. Two days later, on direct orders from Ceausescu, communist troops fired on a large crowd gathered in the town center, killing hundreds and perhaps thousands of innocents. This cowardly, bloody act was the catalyst for a spontaneous people's revolt that quickly spread across the country and to the capital city of Bucharest. Bucharest. Confident that he had the backing of the populace, Ceausescu went to the main square and tried to give a speech listing the socialist accomplishments under his rule. To his shock and amazement, he was interrupted by jeers and boos and whistles. Unable to control the crowd, he and his wife, Elena, fled, to the, city, fled the city in a helicopter, only to be forced down and taken prisoner by a new government. After a short trial by a special military tribunal, Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu were executed on December the 25th, 1989. Today, Lazo Topes, the courageous pastor who brought down a dictator, continues to speak out for freedom against totalitarianism. And he's a member of the European Parliament, or he was, and a bishop of the Reformed Church in Romania. Now, I cite this just as an example of how fast things can change. You think, no way. God says, way. Step back. We've been given a vision of the future. 
men are fascinated by the possibility of knowing the future. They're so fascinated that they're vulnerable to much foolishness. But men can't see. And if we're stripped of any hope of redeeming, of, re- of redemption extending to the world, then life loses all meaning. But if our faith is rooted in the victory of King Jesus, that means we have every reason to make plans, to correct what's wrong, and to build a future society to the glory of God. On the other hand, if this world is simply a futile, on a futile course, then there's no hope and no reason for action. If all we have is an otherworldly orientation, then we can't help but have contempt for history and for time. If that's the case, then the world is a fearful, in a fearful and hopeless condition because it's Christians, you see, who are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Well, if Jesus said, if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're not sitting on the sideline waiting to get rescued. We've been rescued. We've been enlisted. We are soldiers of the cross. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So are we in retreat? Are we preparing for battle? If we've been regenerated in Christ, then let's resume the dominion task that Adam abandoned and let's subdue the earth To the glory of God. Each Sunday, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our story of redemption was, from the beginning, a story of God's plan to redeem the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, mission accomplished. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. And I don't, I don't have time to go into all this now. I don't, I'm absolutely convinced that this portion of the book of Revelation, in fact, the vast majority of the book of Revelation, is talking about things that were happening in the first century, not things that are happening in the next you know, year or two. Revelation 7, 9-10. After these things I looked, John looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, we know that our story has a happy ending for God's people. We win. Good does triumph over evil. All things are reconciled in Him. The apparent tragedy turns out to be a comedy, and it all ends with a giant wedding feast to the, with a glorified bride and groom. Every detail of life serves His purpose, even the things we don't understand. How does this affect the way we live? We walk by faith and not by sight. A couple of years ago, I was delighted, and I'll close with this, um, to hear N.T. Wright sing a Bob Dylan song. And I'm going to read the lyrics to the song. 
And I think Dylan really, he's talking about the return of Christ. And the title from 1964 is When the Ship Comes In. Well, the time will come up when the winds will stop and the breeze will cease to be breathing like the stillness in the wind before the hurricane begins, the hour that the ship comes in. And the seas will split and the ship will hit and the sands on the shoreline will be shaking and the tide will sound and the wind will pound and the morning will be breaking. Oh, the fishes will laugh as they swim out of the path and the seagulls, they'll be smiling and the rocks on the sand will proudly stand the hour that the ship comes in. And the words that are used for to get the ship confused will not be understood as they're spoken, for the chains of the sea will have busted in the night and will be buried at the bottom of the ocean. A song will lift as the mainsail shifts and the boat drifts onto the shoreline and the sun will respect every face on the deck the hour that the ship comes in. Then the sands will roll out a carpet of gold for your weary toes to be a touching. And the ship's wise men will remind you once again that the whole wide world is watching. Oh, the foes will rise with the sleep still in their eyes, and they'll jerk from their beds and think they're dreaming. But they'll pinch themselves and squeal and know that it's for real, the hour when the ship comes in. Then they'll raise their hands saying, we'll meet all your demands, but we'll shout from the bow, your days are numbered. And like Pharaoh's tribe, they'll be drowned in the tide. And like Goliath, they they will be conquered. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we say with the Apostle Paul, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, indeed to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. In this world there are those who make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, the world is without excuse, but not without hope. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for you have shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, your invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even your eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And nations weary, and why do the nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The kingdoms of this world indeed have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet shortly. Thank you, Lord, and we pray this in the glorious and powerful name of our victorious King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
There's a great benediction at the end of the book of Jude, which draws out an important implication of the glory of Christ. Not only do we look forward to his coming in glory, we see in this passage how this fact impacts us now. And here's the last two verses. Uh, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. His glory is our confidence. As he moves forward with his plan, which ends in his glory, we see that we're part of that plan. His glory is tied to our redemption. 1 Corinthians 11.26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. O God, our hope, hear again the cry of the exiles, imprisoned in a dark land of gloom and despair, for we are often weak and fearful. Come among us and strengthen and heal. Look with pity upon your people. Enable us to see the light of our Savior, to see the promised child who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Fill us with thanksgiving and the joy of your generosity and grace, which is made known through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to forsake our own way and to gladly follow our Savior, for he always seeks our good. May his will be our will. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight, for you are our faithful, covenant-keeping God. Bless now our continued communion and our feasting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.